Albert Bender and Adolf Marr exchanged letters more than 170 times during the 1930s. Albert Bender was a short, dapper, genteel patron of the arts, while Adolf Marr was a large, brash but brilliant archaeologist. Bender was an Irishman living in San Francisco, and from there he donated ancient Asian art to the National Museum of Ireland. Dr Marr, an Austrian who was employed at the museum, received Bender's gifts there. Their letters were at first polite and formal, but soon became friendly and sometimes even private. While Albert and Adolf were friends, they created a beautiful art collection together, but in a world on the verge of war. Their letters tell an intriguing tale of friendship, art and idealism, of the flowering of humanity and the seeds of inhumanity. Because although Dr. Marr knew his friend was Jewish, Bender didn't know that Marr was a founder and head of the Irish Nazi party. It all started when Bender sent some Tibetan paintings to Dublin. December 5, 1931. My dear Dr. Marr, I am writing you at the suggestion of my friend, Dr. Walter Starkey, of Trinity College. You may remember that he spoke to you regarding the project of my presenting to the museum 22 Tibetan pictures in the name of my dear mother, Augusta Bender. My parents lived in Dublin for nearly 30 years, where my brothers and sisters and I were born and I remember our family association with that city with deep emotion and gratitude. If, after an inspection of them, you decide that they are not suitable, I will understand. In that case, kindly let me know, and I will send further instructions, and, of course, assume whatever costs are involved in shipping, insurance, or other expense. Very sincerely yours, Albert M. Bender. National Museum of Ireland, January the 15th, 1932. Dear Mr. Bender, I beg to acknowledge with my best thanks receipt of your two very kind letters. I remember that I spoke with Dr. Starkey about the matter last summer and I am sure that if you think the pictures of interest, you will be enough of an expert as to see they are worth to be kept in a museum. I do not think that it needs an expert to say what is beautiful. It is another matter with the question of to what individual period or school of art such objects belong, and I am afraid I do not know much about it myself. But as the pictures will arrive soon, we will see, and can get them carefully photographed and can send the prints to the best experts. Believe me to be yours very sincerely, Dr. A. Marr, Keeper of Irish Antiquities. Dublin, Ireland, 16th of March, 1932. Dear Mr. Bender, how very kind of you to send me again such a nice present, which came as a most unexpected surprise today. My children children said said they had never never tasted tasted such such beautiful beautiful fruits. fruits. Those were the candied fruits. I remember them vividly, and I remember the case in which they came, yeah. And we kept the cases after we'd eaten the the sweets. Candied fruit. And my boy, who was a great geographer, that's right, told me all he knew about golden California. (laughs) 
being only nine, he knew more than I expected, and your kindness, therefore, made also a father proud. Many thanks and all good wishes, yours sincerely, Amar. Well, what else can I comment on this? I was very interested in geography, but I I got that from my father too. He was a, he'd studied geography originally before switching over to history and prehistory. A great geography, knew all about Gordon, California. Yes, well, they, the the fruits, the beautiful fruits, they they are rooted in our memory as children. They were really delicious. And nothing of that type you could get in Ireland at that time. Did you uh, know much about the man who was sending these from California? No, not more than he, that he was a great benefactor and he, he sent us nice things. And No, I had no direct connection with him. I knew that my father had to do with him, but we were too young to relish more than the, than the fruits. San Francisco, April 16, 1932. Dear Dr. Marr, I am sending by this mail three Japanese tapestries and three Chinese embroideries to be added to the Oriental gifts to the National Museum of Ireland. I have taken these out of my own private things and hope they will prove as acceptable as the pictures. With all good wishes to you and yours, Albert M. Bender. Albert Bender was born in Dublin in 1866. He was the son of Rabbi Dr. Philip Bender and his Catholic wife Augusta. He emigrated to San Francisco aged 16 and made his fortune in the insurance industry. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, Albert, who was also known as Mickey Bender, was the most active buyer and donor of art in California. The great photographers Ansel Adams and Dorothea Lange and such artists as Diego Rivera owe their early successes to Bender's patronage. He established art collections in the Museum of Art in California, Mills College in Oakland and Stanford University before turning his attention to his native city. By August 1932, Adolf Marr felt the Bender collection was too rich for the National Museum. He said it was an old museum with too much red tape and apathy. He asked Bender to stop sending material. He told Bender about a team of Harvard archaeologists that had applied for an excavator's license in Ireland but were refused. Marr said, I got so annoyed about the stupidity of my counsel that I simply broke the law of which I am supposed to be the main watchdog. I gave them the best Cranach to excavate of which I knew. It was the first Cranach which was ever scientifically excavated in Ireland. The Harvard people made a very good dig and were awarded by the discovery of two unique things, a bronze church lamp, 10th century, probably originating from Clonmacnoise, and a wooden game board of the Viking period with most beautiful ornamentation. Pat Wallace current director of the National Museum, explains. We're here in the exhibition. This is in the Viking suite of galleries, Viking Age, where we try to describe not only Viking Dublin, Scandinavian Waterford and and, and, and Wexford and places like that, but also to show the non 
urban Viking legacy in Ireland. And one of the great sites is Ballanderry Crano, which uh, Dr. Mars refers to uh, for the couple of major objects that came out of it. Now, that was done by the Harvard Archaeological Mission as well. And among the objects there that Mar mentions is the hanging bowl or the sanctuary lamp, uh, which is a very important thing. And the, the beautiful gaming board, the wooden peg board, is for, for a game like Chinese checkers, which is little pegs that move around from, from, from hole to hole on that board. That's a lovely thing. And it used to be thought that that might have been made in the Isle of Man. Another school of thought, because of the Viking-style decoration on the edges of the board, that it could have been made even in Viking Limerick. But it could easily have been made in Ballanderry, because Ballanderry is very much a little Viking enclave in the middle of Ireland. Little, it's major. Uh, I mean, for instance, one of the greatest swords in the Viking world, uh, maybe a sword of the ninth century, maybe one of the top four or five swords in the whole Viking age, signed by its maker, uh, was found in Ballanderry on those excavations. Also found was the longbow, one of the very unique longbows uh, of, uh, of, uh, of medieval Europe uh, of, the, of that time, of the 10th century again, from that site. So it's, it's a very important site, and Mar would be up to his uh, ears in, in interest, support, in the publication, and in, in lining up scholars to do the specialist parts of the report, which was finally published by the Academy. He was trying to do something new, something big, something of world importance. And, of course, the narrow little uh, outlook of some of the members of the council couldn't make the leap to jump with him, the great man that he was, uh, to allow the Americans to do the excavations in Ireland. But he got around that, and as he says himself, he broke the law. What I would suggest there is he's being very direct, and, and of course his English is not his first language, German is. Uh, what he did was really he sort of sidestepped their objections and persuaded uh, the, the, them to accept the Germans. I think that's the way of putting that in a diplomatic way. He got around the... Uh, the kind of impediment to doing what was best for Ireland and that was to allow the Harvard mission in because Irish archaeology has never looked back since then. There was no scientific excavation done before the Harvard mission came to Ireland and Maher could see the value of that. Don't forget, it's only 30 years before that that people used to dig with shovels and and even more recent than that, uh, in in, in the early decades of the century, that uh, a certain professor in UCD was using dynamite to investigate uh, the uh, passage graves in County Sligo. So Mar changed all that from that Middle East kind of Indiana Jones style boom and blast archaeology into real scientific careful continental style uh, American excavation. Your letter of July the 30th announces a further gift of Chinese tapestry. Now, dear Mr. Bender, I have got to be quite frank with you, and the honest truth is that my museum is not worth such valuable gifts and such sacrifices on your part. We are not, or not yet, good enough an institution to be favoured with such magnificent gifts. You have no idea how backwards in all cultural matters we here are. We have an old museum with many fine things, but they are intermingled with worst rubbish. People laugh at my enthusiasm, and I was told by an officer of my own department that it is very undemocratic to work after official hours. The others don't care about fresh life in their divisions. They are insular, and although they grumble, they don't realize that they are to be blamed themselves 
that they are years behind. There was no work worth speaking of done within the last 30 years in Irish archaeology, and it is my duty to bring the country which pays my salary up to the standard of the other European countries. But, dear Mr. Bender, why shall we go to the trouble to force such a fine Far East collection upon a division of the museum and upon a country which is not yet mature for it? And why should I encourage you in an expenditure if I am perhaps the only man in Ireland who can fully appreciate your gifts? Well, no, that, that letter was written in, in 1932. And I think it's very... I, I don't, it doesn't reflect badly on Dr. Maher at all. It shows his candour. Uh, even Dr. Maher's worry about the Irish not being big enough, uh, I suppose, to appreciate uh, a, a collection of that, of that wonderment is is accurate and honest because even yet 60 or 70 years later we still haven't put it on display so it still applies that so few people appreciate these things uh we are informed we have a worldwide view but in the old days say in the 1930s the only people with a worldwide view were catholic missionaries i presume in ireland uh certainly not the government or people like that uh, Catholic missionaries and I suppose the legatees are, are people who inherited the values and interests of the old British Empire who were still around the place. Maher would have been an imperialist as well, a, a native of Austria, uh, a pro-German another empire uh, and we, we had the French Empire as well. It's only in those days, it's only people with that great imperialistic inheritance or the Catholic Church's inheritance which has a world outlook rather than the small. Don't forget Ireland was tightening in in many ways at this time. We became a more inward, introverted people uh, when we were left to our own devices, when we left, thankfully, the empire. So we have to see Maher in context, and there would have been no school or no college in Ireland then teaching the value of, a, of an Oriental, uh, Far Eastern decorative arts uh, or uh, silk, uh, Tibetan uh, uh, Chinese silk collection. Actually, Maher's real objection, of course, was his ulterior motive. He wanted the money for the value of this collection so he could plough it into Celtic archaeology, which was the real love he had. Not only that, he knew that Ireland was the repository of the greatest legacy of Celtic archaeology in the world, and he wanted to enhance that, make the National Museum and Ireland a central focus to become a central world place of learning. And he probably regarded the Bender collection with its oriental emphasis as a bit extraneous and very hard to grapple with, but he didn't want to miss the chance of the, of the worth of it by ploughing that into the Irish kind of cultural economy. Bender didn't favour making cash donations, and so he offered to stop sending material. After some weeks of deliberation, Marr found himself in agreement with Bender's original intention. Dear Mr Bender, I am very glad to give you good tidings. The seemingly impossible will become possible, and there will be, within reasonable time, a special Augusta Bender Memorial Room of Far Eastern Art. Value and beauty of your donations alike simply cry out for the creation of a separate exhibition room. And failing sufficient initiative by others, I will have to do it, as it simply must be done. Nineteen thirty-two was also the year of the Eucharistic Congress. While John McCormack prepared to sing Panis Angelicus in the Phoenix Park, Dr. Marr was asked to produce a book 
on Christian art in ancient Ireland for the event. In a gesture of friendship, Marr sent Bender a copy of the book, and in one of his letters mentioned that since it was a government publication, he would not receive a royalty. Bender ordered five copies of the book to distribute among his friends in San Francisco. He also sent Marr a cheque for £25, a personal gift in lieu of royalty. Marr wrote back to say he would use the money to supplement the meagre library grant for the museum. Kildare Street, 3rd of April, 1933. Dear Mr. Bender, I beg to report that the 22 objects which Dr. Hart announced have arrived. I am in a great hurry now, as I have only just returned from County Antrim and am on my way to the West to see your famous fellow countryman, Mr. Flaherty, who made the beautiful films. It was inevitable that politics would enter the correspondence of Bender and Marr. Early 1933 was a remarkable time on both sides of the Atlantic. While California experienced a strong earthquake, Jews and other groups were shaken by the election of Adolf Hitler and his National Socialist Party in Germany. Bender, a Jew living in California, was concerned by both developments. April 5, 1933. You are right in saying that there is something wrong with the world. These are days of chaos. And the reversion of an enlightened nation like Germany to 14th century barbarism is so atrocious that one loses confidence in the progress of the human race. Such conduct on the part of Germany is turning the hands of the clock backward for four or five hundred years. 28th of April, 1933. Dear Mr. Bender, I am very grateful for your renewed kindness to send the nice postage stamps and cards for my boy and I beg to thank for them most sincerely. But you make it difficult for me to accept such a present when in practically the same letter you speak of my country in terms like 14th century barbarism. I am as conscious of my German nationality as you certainly are of your bonds of allegiance. And if I look at the different territories inhabited by some 16 million of Germans who are subject to Czech and Polish rule under the terms of the so-called peace treaties, which were announced as the final readjustment of the crimes committed by the Central Powers, you will perhaps understand that I am thin-skinned, that we cannot well be expected to swallow contemptive terms in addition to the mistreatment which was meted out to us. The Irish have filled the whole world for several centuries with their grievances. Could anybody expect that a people twenty times as numerous would silently rot away in misery and humiliation in order as not to disturb the equanimity of the powers and people that are responsible for the 1919 treaties that were offered at the point of the sword after a most inhuman blockade which was carried on for half a year after armistice and which put hundreds of thousands of children and old people to death? 
if there be anything wrong in Germany, the main responsibility rests with the powers which promised they would bring about the golden era and which have only succeeded in plunging the world in a latent war, infinitely worse than the late war. Yours sincerely, A. Marr. If he'd lived in Germany, there is a possibility that he would have recognised what was happening. But you must remember that there were very, very many Germans and Austrians too, who right into the 30s and right up to the beginning of the war were absolutely convinced that Hitler was the, the best answer that we could give. And at last we were again respected in everywhere because we had built up a large army and we were, we were somebody again. Read that paragraph just, for, if you don't mind, maybe just in here. And just I had sincerely hoped that the quarrel between the present German government and Jewry would not have entered our correspondence. I have never alluded to the fact that, after all, there was a thing called the Balfour Declaration, 1916, by which international Jewry was enlisted, enlist, en, enlisted, he must have, not enlisted, enlisted to support the anti-German cause. You know that the Balfour Declaration was given by the English and they promised, promised the Jews the Holy Land against the Arabs. That was the beginning of, the, of the, what's going on there now, and the beginning of Israel too. To support the anti-German cause, and international Jewry, especially the Americans, were very keen, of course, to get the Balfour Declaration from the British. And so they supported the British in their fight against the Germans, who were beginning to build up a large navy and trying to... to uh, Stop Britannia ruling the waves all over the world. That's that's the, the international. And I have never alluded to the fact that the Germans have a very great grievance against America in the question of the 14 points. That was Wilson, you know, which were most flagrantly turned into their very opposite without scruples of conscience. Of course, this was not the fault of Mr. Wilson. But he succumbed more or less to, or he gave in to the others. But you are not Mr. Wilson, and Mr. Trotsky and I am not Mr. Hitler. Why can we not discuss more pleasant things in which we both take a common and purely human interest? That, of course, in a way, is escapism. I would admit that. Seen from today, and from my life, and from my um, convictions. Why? Why escapism? Because even at that point, I believe that people who were grown up and could influence by their vote, and we voted too in, in Ireland, we had German votes, we took a boat, German boat, and went outside the three-mile limit, and, they fired, they, and then they gave their, uh, their votes to the Nazi party, of course, 99.9%. And had a great spree on the boat and then returned to Dunleary and <laughs> kept on their lives in, in Ireland. So people who could, who had influence or who were members of the party couldn't pretend if they were keeping up connection with a Jew in any way, which was dangerous at the time, even for a German, even outside Germany and in his position as, as Nazi party leader... They saw no reason probably to stop him or to bring him into line. And he adhered to party discipline anyway, claiming that the party said you don't have to take part 
in foreign politics. All you have to do is to adhere to your country. And at that time, of course, Hitler was still pretending that he was doing everything for, in order to restore or to keep up uh, peace in, in the world. After all, Chamberlain fell for him, and that was 1938, in the Munich Agreement. So, before 1938, I don't think you could expect much more than what he was writing here, that we are not in a position to, to change the course of history, which was fouled uh, a long time ago by international jury, of course. Uh, that was the enemy, more or less, an enemy feature that that he believed in, that there was a an international Jewish, uh, what would you call it? Uh, hmm? What did you say? Confederation or conspiracy? Uh, conspiracy, that's it. But Mr. Bender was not uh, uh, international jury business. He was doing other things and was a good man. And my father tried to be a good man too. I think Marr was more interested while in Dublin during the 1930s in building up a strong <clears throat> Nazi party machine among the relatively small German colony here. Um, the number of Jews in Ireland at that time was relatively small. Uh, I, d- I don't think it would have been uh, a major issue for Marr, although we do know that the uh, the legation on Northumberland Road in Dublin supplied Marr regularly with lists of people, the, the movements of Germans coming to and fro, uh, and they included Jews because the Jews on the list were marked Yuda uh, in brackets after their names. So Marr was fully aware of, of the arrival of German Jews as refugees in Ireland um, in the late 1930s. He was an idealistic man reared in Vienna, which is a violently anti-Jewish uh, atmosphere, one of the worst, you might say, in the world. The hatred that was inflicted on the Jews of Vienna after 1938, they had to scrub the, the, the sidewalks with, with toothbrushes and were lashed while they were doing it. So, and I know from, from personal, uh, my, my relatives lived in Austria. We came to Austria at the end of 1939 in the war. And of course, at that time, everything was more or less over. But the Jewish pogroms, the, 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 the Holocaust had not started yet. There were still Jews in the country. I, I, even here in Berlin, I still saw a lot of uh, David stars on the doors of the doctors here. I've just come from the hospital Moabit, which was also run by Jews, mainly very good people. And what they did to them in 1938 was simply frightful. But all these things, he says that in another letter, or at some juncture, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't see that from Ireland. We didn't get news. Nobody would would have warned us what was going on because our relatives were delighted with the situation and the other ones didn't dare to write anything. And another thing that he kept saying, of course, this beautiful saying, right or wrong, my country. May 12, 1933. My dear Dr. Marr, I cannot allow the day to pass without acknowledgement of your letter of April 28th. The truth is that I was unconscious of the fact that I was writing to a gentleman of foreign origin. But it must be clear to you that I had no wish to interpolate into our friendly correspondence any subjects of controversy. There is no need for it. At the worst, it was a slip of the pen, as one might say, on my part, 
for which I wish to tender you herewith my sincere apologies. I make it a rule to keep away from such subjects, but I suppose at some time or other a man is off guard. It should be remembered that where there is not the slightest intent to wound, there can be no real grievance. You are quite right in saying that the world is full of injustices, and no nation is exactly in a position to assume a spot-white mantle. Cordially yours, Albert Bender. As work towards the completion of the Bender Room continued at the museum, Bender sent other objects, including a Chinese mortuary horse that was more than a thousand years old. Now 68 years of age, he would not travel to Ireland for the official opening of the room. Instead, he thanked Marr and submitted his guest list for the occasion. Irish Press, 26th of June 1934. Bender Memorial Room, Dublin Ceremony. The Augusta Bender Memorial Room of Far Eastern Art at the National Museum Dublin was formally opened by Mr De Valera, President of the Executive Council, last evening. Mr De Valera, who was received with applause, said that the beautiful objects with which the room was filled had been presented to the museum by Mr A. M. Bender of San Francisco. Mr Bender, although his life had been largely spent far from our shores, had always held Ireland, the land of his birth, in loving memory. With public spirit all too rare, he had established there, in the city where he had spent his youth, a collection which, while being a lasting memorial to his mother, increased the cultural possessions of his native country. Less than a month later, Dr Adolf Marr was promoted from his position as Keeper of Irish Antiquities to Director of the National Museum. But politically, dark clouds were gathering. On the 12th of March 1938, Hitler's troops crossed into Austria and united the two countries. Marr would have welcomed the news, but for 190,000 Austrian Jews, the Anschluss marked the beginning of a campaign of terror. Within six months, more than 60,000 were destitute. One of those who needed to flee the Nazis was Dr. Alphonse Barb, an old friend of Adolf Marr. In desperation, he turned to Marr for help. In turn, Marr petitioned Bender to help Barb gain entry to the United States. Dear Dr. Bender, I beg to appeal to you today in a matter of human appeal. As you may remember, I came over to Ireland 11 years ago from Vienna, where I spent all the earlier periods of my scientific education and work. During the last years of my stay in Vienna, I had a very considerable amount of cooperation with a Jew, whose name is Dr. Alphonse Barb. I had a very high opinion of this man's abilities, and I like him also personally. He married in about 1930 a Hungarian Jewess and has two children. Recent developments in Austria deprived him of his career, and recent developments all over Europe preclude any possibility of finding for him a position anywhere in Europe. 
I have tried very hard in many countries to find some position for him, and all efforts were in vain. Dr. Barb is willing to take any job, and so is his wife, who would not mind becoming a cook or domestic servant, or indeed anything, in order to provide for the children. Dr. Barb has a good command of the principal languages and would be of very great value to any employer, be it a museum or another scientific institution or even in any ordinary business. I beg of you most sincerely to think it over whether you think anything could be done for this man. With kindest regards, yours sincerely, A. Marr. It isn't known what steps, if any, Bender took to help Barb. But in November, Marr wrote twice more, seeking his help, and also enclosed a letter from Barb. Dear Dr. Bender, my colleague Barb in Vienna writes again as follows. Dear Dr. Marr, many thanks for your most recent letter and all the trouble you take in my case. I am writing also to Mr. Briscoe, as suggested by you, be it for no other reason but not to neglect even the slightest chance. Yours sincerely, signed Dr. Barb. He managed to get a job in, in England. How, I don't know, and when, I don't know either. But I know that my father did his very, very best at that time, in, that was 1938, isn't it? Yes, after, the, after Austria had been amalgamated, that he tried to help Barb to get a job. Whether Bender was able to help him or whether somebody else helped him, I don't know, but Barb got a job and he lived all through the war in, in England, as far as I know. As a, I think he worked with the Warburg and Courtauld Institute. But I can't tell you the details. All I can tell you is that Mr. Barb, long after father's death, sent me a bundle of letters which my father had sent to Barb. When, I don't know. In the war, I don't think so. Maybe after the war. I think actually my father got an affidavit from Barb because he collected affidavits, which he mentions in one of these letters, to prove that he, wasn't, that he was helping Jews and that he was not a rampant and, and a Holocaust uh, a Nazi. You know from the news bulletins to which you have been listening that the great European powers are again at war. That this would be the end has appeared almost inevitable for months past. Such an escape as we had a year ago could hardly be expected to occur twice. Yet, until a short time ago, there was hope. But now hope is gone, and the people of Europe are plunged once more into the misery and anguish of war. I went to school in Ireland until the war broke out because we were caught more or less unawares in Germany when the war started and couldn't return. That, at least, is the official version. We don't really know what motives uh, my father had to return on the brink of war. My father was so committed to, uh, to his country, his fatherland, as we call it, you know the name, uh, 
that he didn't want to be on the wrong side of the barricade in case something happened. And the trouble was that he doesn't seem to have realized how serious the situation was in August, in July and August in 1939. And so we were scheduled to come back on, I think it was the 16th of September or something. We even had our berths booked on the on the transatlantic scheme, uh, steamer. And uh, but on the 1st of September, as you know, the war broke out. Adolf Maher wrote one last time to Albert Bender on the 29th of December 1939 from the Austrian ski resort Bad Ischl. Happy New Year to you and all good wishes for 1940. Was caught on leave and could not return to my museum. Hope your health is again okay. A. Maher. Now we know from, uh, from his uh, personnel file uh, for the war years that uh, he worked on the Irish desk in, in Berlin. So Maher was, you know, involved in Irish affairs during the war and he also was instrumental in, in um, revamping the Irish propaganda service of German radio, which for the first two years of the war had broadcast only in the Irish language to listeners in neutral Ireland. Maher's brainchild was to launch a, a nightly English language service specifically for Irish listeners. <clears throat> and basically the programme format was, you know, lots of jigs and reels, Irish music, war communiques, praise of the German leaders, um, you know, predictions of a German victory and uh, glorious unified Europe after a German victory and uh, and anti-partition, anti-English, um, anti-British empire and normal standard Nazi propaganda. Albert Bender never got to see the Augusta Bender Memorial Room or meet the man who assembled the collection on his behalf, Dr. Marr. Aged 75 years, Bender died of a heart attack in San Francisco in 1941. The front page of the San Francisco Chronicle contained the headline A man who gave his heart to San Francisco dies. Marr was eventually tracked down to um, northwest Germany. Uh, he was arrested by the Allies um, either in late 1945 or early 1946, interned, and according to his family, brutally treated. He had to sleep on a stone floor. He was he was beaten up regularly. He was half-starved. He was interrogated. And he was finally released when he was at death's door. Um, in April 1946, he was released from internment and... Uh, the evidence was that uh, he was emaciated and quite close to death. But he survived um, and um, actually went through the process of applying for his job uh, back in the National Museum in Dublin, but I think it was too late because Irish military intelligence at that stage knew what he'd been up to during the war. You know, as James Dillon said in the doll, Marr had backed the wrong horse and that horse had lost. And so Marr's chances of coming back here were virtually nil once military intelligence had drawn up a secret report, a very damning report on Mars Nazi activities, both pre-war and during the war for the de Valera government. So um, he never did see Dublin again, and um, I think he did a small amount of museum work after the war, but he was a broken man uh, because of his wartime experiences, and uh, he died in Germany in 1951. It was a terrible mistake uh, to have made, and... Uh, 
one which uh, cost him, I suppose, it shortened his life. It certainly cost him his prestige and his whole life's work. And in fact, he he is remembered now more for the fact that he was a, a big Nazi rather than that he was a big museum man, because big, big museum man is what he should be remembered as. Sadly, he will be remembered as a Nazi because the Nazis are, have left such a stain on the map of Europe. Dear Mr. Bender, I have to gratefully acknowledge receipt of several kind letters which I could not answer sooner as I was away to attend the first International Congress of Prehistoric and Protohistoric Sciences which began in London on August the 1st. It was the first Congress of its kind held after the war and it was a great success. The savants have finally come together again after many years of alienation and let us hope that their mutual understanding is only a forerunner of a still wider mutual understanding of civilized people. It so happened that Germany lost the war, that Britain nearly lost it, that France won it and that America pays it. We anthropologists look upon it with nearly complete detachment, as we know that the present national and racial boundaries are a thing of very late origin, and that the boundaries which separated mankind in the Stone Age are probably more important than the makeshifts of our present politicians. There's a growing feeling amongst anthropologists to lose all interests in what is today miscalled politics. And I should say that the world would be better off if also the politicians took less interest in politics. Amar, 21st of August, 1932.